Welcome to the Uncharted Podcast. I am your host, Inez Franklin. My hope for you today is that we discover faith beyond the boundaries. Uncharted is intended to be a safe place for you to listen, learn, and challenge yourself along your journey of faith. May grace and peace be with you today. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Uncharted Podcast with Inez Franklin. We're continuing our conversation with Sharon Hottie Miller, and we've been talking about her book, The Cost of Control. I hope you've been enjoying our prior podcast as we have actually are walking through her book and connecting what she talks about in her book with this idea of the journey of faith. And so today is going to be a real treat because we talk about how it is that we exercise this craving for control, all the various ways in which we do so. And what you'll find surprising is how many ways we do it. And probably when you look at your own life, you're probably seeing yourself exercise control every single day. And sometimes it's not a bad thing. Oftentimes it's obviously not good. So I think you're going to love this conversation. I am so grateful to have it. And again, share this with your friends so they too might be encouraged. Uh, follow along with the entire conversation. And if you have not purchased the book, I highly recommend you do so, so that you can read along with us. So let's listen in to this conversation. So I'm glad to get uh, going on this part of your book because this is where you talk about how we control. Like we, we get into the nitty gritty. So I, I went through your book again this morning, looking at these six ways that you mentioned in your book that we, how we exercise our craving for control. And I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk about one, a couple of them, all of them. Um, I have notes on all of them, so it doesn't really matter which way you want to go. Um, I have an interest in some more than others, so I don't know. What are your thoughts? Which one was most interesting to you? Well, personally, uh, both the theology and shame, uh, and I would say power. So power, theology, and shame, because those are so tied together. Um, those. So I went straight to theology because it breaks my heart how we, oh, that sounds so like cliche, breaks my heart. That's not what I mean, but you know, it really does. It aches my heart. When I do this myself, so I'm not saying when other people do it, when I do it, when I misuse my understanding of God um, to manipulate God, you know, I, I did it myself for a long time. So, and then of course, we, pe- I see people doing it to others as yeah. well, yeah. which is yeah, that so that chapter was one that I had not initially planned to be in the book. I think I came to it. I think I had included it as a subcategory of another chapter at some point. And as I wrote, and because I process by writing, that's like one of the ways I process my thoughts is actually through writing. Cool. And as I processed theology as a form of control, the section I was writing just ballooned. It just got bigger and bigger. And then I finally realized this isn't a subcategory. This is a main category of a way that we try to feel in control. And especially the connection for anyone who hasn't read it, the connection that I draw 
is that the prosperity gospel is a form of control. It, it is a way of making the world feel predictable. And we see it play out in, in scripture, in fact. We see the disciples practicing this type of theology when they approach the man born blind. And the first question they ask is, who sinned? Whose fault? Yeah. yeah. And that is a prosperity theology framework that surely this is a punishment because if you had enough faith, if you were a good, you know, religious person, then God would not have, God would have rewarded you, not punished you. And it's so important to understand that that question really at the core of it is them reckoning with their own vulnerability in a broken world and not wanting to feel vulnerable to whatever happened to him could happen to me. And so they it's write contagious this theology. In some way. Yeah, they write this theology that sort of tames the world. It makes everything feel more manageable and makes them feel less unsafe. And whenever we explain away why something happened to somebody else in a way that makes us feel off the hook, like, and, and therefore this won't happen to me because I'm a good person or because I work really hard or because I have so much faith, that's just the prosperity theology, but at the heart of it is just control. And so that to me was a huge, important connection that I didn't set out to make when I first was outlining the book. But as I dug into it, realized this is a really important one. Yes. And I, I would almost think if you were to rewrite the book, maybe that would have been the first one because mm. in the garden, right, mm -hmm. it was a theological control that mm -hmm. was taking place, a desire to take, take our understanding of God and reframe it mm -hmm. for our advantage um, mm -hmm. So it works yeah. the way we want it to, right? And then another kind of adjacent, I don't really tease this one out quite as much in the theology chapter, but it's definitely in the book that another way we use faith to feel in control is through predictions, you know, false predictions, basically, about what is happening in the world, like what world events mean in light of scripture and kind of using scripture so, as yeah. this cipher that helps us to decode what world events mean. And I had so much fun researching all the different people that have made false predictions about the end times. And it's so crazy to me how some of uh, some really prominent theologians made these predictions even though Jesus himself was like don't do that you know like yeah. very yeah. clearly nobody knows and yet we're just like la di da we're going to ignore and the one that really got me was Martin Luther because he yes. his whole deal is sola scriptura and what does scriptura say don't predict the end times <laughs> Yes, very true. <laughs> and there he was still making false predictions. And so that's how how deeply ingrained that control reflex is and, and how we will spiritualize it, you know, when it, it really is just sin. Very much. In fact, <clears throat> I, I think maybe in your sermon you shared about some of the people that le led thousands of people astray with these predictions and the damage and how... The date comes and passes, and 
There's no consequence, you know, and mm-hmm. yet people's lives are devastated. So right. this is what I mean yeah. when my heart aches because mm-hmm. it's so devastating um, mm-hmm. uh, and stress producing when people are saying this is the date or it's, now it's mm-hmm. happening, now it's happening. And right. I think about years ago, I went to a Lausanne conference in Cape Town, 2010, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they did this whole, they had a video and I thought I had it with the disc they sent me and I don't, which is such a bummer. But they did this video showing throughout history these big events. And at the end of each big event, they said, and everyone thought the world was going to end. And then there was another big event, and everyone thought the world was going to end, that Jesus is coming. And this happened over and over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And of course, COVID, everything that happened in COVID, people went through that place again. Anytime there's Mm -hmm. a catastrophe, okay, this is it. We have it figured out, God. We we can see the signs. Yeah. And- yeah, and it's such a um, yeah, it's such a painful journey to watch people go through. Mm-hmm. So it it aches well, me. and the yeah. the what what we're doing whenever we either cling to these false predictions or cling to these false theologies that 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 promise you if you live a certain way, if you have enough faith that you know nothing bad is going to happen to you. The thing about all of them is that what we're ultimately doing is we are going to some basically relying it's a, it's a it's a little bit tricky to explain but we're relying on theology or relying on an interpretation of scripture instead of relying on God himself. And I think that is, it's so close to one another, it's, it's easy to mistake, but we, we really, what we're doing is we're relying on, you know, our sense of certainty and control to, to give us security instead of Jesus himself. And we run to these things be, as if Jesus is not enough security, you know, th- that, that we don't need to know what these world events mean because we have Jesus. Like that is what it means to be a Christian, but we are practically proclaiming with our lives and our choices that it is not enough. I need to know what this means in order to feel secure. Yes. Well, the other th- reason this was um, an interest to me is because, you know, I'm writing a book on called Uncharted, which has to do with the journey of faith isn't as linear as we'd like it to be, or we try to make it be, right? We're, it, this is where we do put God in a box and we said, that, you know, okay, I have faith in you, Jesus. I'm going to church. I'm giving. I'm doing all the right things. I'm in the word. I'm being generous, et cetera. And therefore, it ought to work a certain way. And from my own experience, I was I grew up, I grew up in a Catholic church. Uh, I left the church when I was very young um, and didn't go to church anymore. And it wasn't until I was 40 that I became a believer. But by then I had made a mess of my life. When I did give my life to Jesus at 40 years old. And I started reading the Bible for the first time, and I'm seeing God's will, a lot of conversations about God's will happening around the same time. Rick Warren's book came out, lots of books out there talking about it. Then I went into this desire of, okay, I live a lot of my life my way. I now want to live God's way, and that ought to produce a certain effect. My way produced an effect. God's way should produce an effect. And I went on a search for discerning the will of God. What did that mean? Am I calling and all these things? Not bad things. But when I look back, what I was looking for was a sense of control of my journey of faith. So I controlled my life before Jesus, and I was controlling my life after Jesus. 
trying to control God to operate in a certain way so things would happen in a linear fashion. That's where the book comes out of. That's why theology jumped at me as one that I think even as Christians or sadly often as Christians, we manipulate God or want to or inadvertently manipulate God or scriptures to have God operate in the way that we want him to versus the way he Mm -hmm. is. Which, of course, how silly, right? Because we don't have the wisdom he has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. the thing I like about how the topic of your book intersects with mine is especially like when it comes to calling, because we, for whatever reason, we believe calling is going to be very clear cut and linear. And then as soon as it isn't, as soon as as things happen that we wouldn't predict or that we can't control, as soon as it seems like things are not unfolding the way that we anticipated, then we automatically doubt the call itself. And how when you look at scripture and all the different call narratives, none of them were linear. None of them. You know? (laughs) They were all just fraught with confusion and loop-de-loops and times of extended waiting. I mean, they all had so much waiting. Yes. And we see that. We read about all these different stories, but then when it happens to us, it's like, what's happening? Like, did I mishear God? And yes. it's because we want it to be this really neat and tidy process and not understanding that the parts of our calling we can't control are also an essential part of our own spiritual formation. That's right. That's right. And that when God calls us, he's calling us so that he can form us. Right. So, mm-hmm. right. <clears throat> I love that. I, I agree. This is where I did connect with, with what you wrote, which then leads me to um, when you... Think of the garden and Adam and Eve have, you know, using using this as a core of your book, at having the choice at that point to obey or not obey. Would you agree that all of these uh, ways or the how we control all had to do with obedience or not obedience? I mean, in the end, these all connect to our Re, um, rejection of obedience, our rebellious yeah. nature, right? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to that theology, God told them, you know, you will made in his likeness, made in his image. Mm-hmm. Well, the linear path of being like God should be to be God, right? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. I'm like God, then I want to be God. I want to have that knowledge. Right. I want to have all that yeah. power, all, all the various things, mm-hmm. all the abundance that God has, etc. cetera. Um, that's the linear path. And it's, mm-hmm. and they took the worst path by trying to take the linear path. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I felt like all of those connected back to that as well. Um, mm-hmm. Before I jump, jump to the next one, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, what happened in Genesis 3 was a defiance of the single boundary that God had put on their power. There was really one, there was just one, the the single boundary, the single limitation he had put on their power. And anytime we try to control something that God has not given us control over, we are defying a limitation that he has also put on our power. And so, yes, it, it is, it goes back to that 
basic, that original ground zero disobedience every time. Yeah. 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 And, and our, I just find it so fascinating because when you think about God in all his fullness, it makes no sense that we would want to be disobedient to God. It mm-hmm. just doesn't really. Yeah. But yeah. What an odd thing. Well, and We're I, such I always wonder, <laughs> I'm so curious why when a snake starts talking to Adam, why he doesn't go to God and say like, hey, BTW, there's a snake talking to me. And also he's telling me that you're holding out on us. You know, he could have. He could have asked God any of those questions, and instead he decides to handle it himself. And that is the human condition, right? Like, instead of taking stuff that worries us or that we wonder about or that we're confused about, instead of taking it to God, we decide to handle it ourselves. And that's the soul of control, basically. True. Very true. Which one of the ones you mentioned is autonomy, which yeah. is this idea of separating from, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the the incorrect sense of freedom that we have when we mm-hmm. seek to control via mm-hmm. autonomy. Talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that one. I thought that was a very good one too. That one is probably the most important one for the state of discipleship in our culture right now. So again, for anyone who hasn't read it, I have this whole section on different forms of control, like mechanisms of control. And, you know, power is a really obvious one. Money. uh, We just talked about theology. But another one that I included that's probably less obvious is autonomy. And autonomy does not have to do with self-control, like self-control the way that scripture defines it has much more to do with discernment like in in a moment in this moment in, in a situation in a conflict whatever am i going to do the way tim keller describes it is the urgent thing or the important thing and self-control gives us the wisdom to do the important thing rather than the urgent and so self-control is not simply about nobody gets to tell me what to do because i control myself that's not what self-control is the scripture understands it But with autonomy, that has much more to do with self-governance. And it is, it's important. I mean, it is, there's an an extent to which it is God-given because you don't see Adam and Eve as puppets in the garden. There, There is a sense in which they have some independence. But we live in a culture that, really emphasizes hyper-individualism and absolute autonomy and this almost idolatrous emphasis on personal rights. And that manifests in nobody gets to tell me what to do. And that is is about control. And it, it really, we saw this especially flare up in a lot of different ways. And I can't remember if we talked about this on another interview, but we saw this early in the pandemic where people lost control over everything except for themselves. Right. And so that was sort of the last stand where it was like, no one can tell me what to do. You know, this is the only thing I have left to control, but that is not a, a Christian orientation to the self or to others. But it, it really is a huge issue 
in our culture right now because that perspective really is incompatible with Christian community. Very true. The the expressive individualism, which we I get to decide who I am, what I am, how I live, it's it's really been um, a lie, a terrible lie that we bought into. No question about it. And in my book, I talk about traveling in community because a lot of times on our journey of faith, we we have this sense of, well, it's my relationship with God. I'm not part of a church. I have my own relationship with God, which I do believe is central. I, I think, awesome. Absolutely. That's central. We have to have a deep, intimate relationship with the Lord and with the word. That, and then, but, but that, it can't stay there. We know there is a relationship with God, which is supposed to affect the relationship we have with others and others affect us. And so we have to be in community, but my goodness, there's a lot of toxic community out there um, in, with regard to the faith. So I know, I know a lot of people who have been hurt, who are bouncing from church to church, trying to find community. I know your book is talking about community as a whole. I've, I've been focusing in on the community of faith and how when we get hurt, we tend to escape it and then become autonomous in our relationship with God and think that's that's the better way to go. And just like COVID, we think all I have is control of self. So I'll just remove and only focus here. But that also extends to the journey of faith. And that too is a mistake because we, we are formed in community. Um, the body of Christ all has purpose. Each person has a purpose to bring in. And so we have to be in it together. So um, I love that you added that in. And of course, here, I think in your chapter, you talked about the Holy Spirit, the, the role of the Holy Spirit to always, for God to be always in community with us, that there's, we're never not in community. You're never alone, really. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that the Holy Spirit is equally in other people in addition mm-hmm. to you. And we act as if we all have this kind of monopoly on the Holy Spirit, as if we don't need to hear from the Holy Spirit in the mouths of other people, but how important it is to hear from the Holy Spirit in other people as well. That's good. That's really good. And at the same time, conversely, when someone comes and says, well, I have a word from the Lord for you, I've heard this, (laughs) that we ought to say, Thank you. I'm glad you're listening to the Lord and I'm going to go and pray because if uh-huh. he's wanting that, I'm going to hear from him right. too. You know, it's like mm-hmm. so it's sort 100%. of like both and, right? It's we yeah. have to be with others, but we also have to always go back and check it with the mm-hmm. Lord. So yes. that was a great I love that that. And now can we talk about um uh the power dynamic. So this is you in your book you talk about verbal, emotional, physical, authoritative, spiritual. Ah, power. Mm-hmm. What, oh, so much pain when we try to control through all these ways. And mm-hmm. I mean, I felt myself guilty in all of them, you know, as yeah. I was looking at it. I could just, oh, convicted, convicted, convicted. And the contradiction of our desire for power versus the way that Jesus exercised his power. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the very way that he came. You know, I was mm-hmm. thinking the other day, oh, in the garden, there were no babies until after the fall. Yeah, that's true. Like we we became uh-huh. more vulnerable post uh-huh. the fall, not less yes. vulnerable, yes. more vulnerable. Uh-huh. Yeah. And at that most ultimate vulnerability, 
That's the way Jesus chose to come at our most mm. vulnerable state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. I've been reflecting on that. So, yeah, tell us about the power, mm-hmm. the way that we control through power. So, power is probably the most obvious form of control because it is the form of control that we are most likely to be successful at. You know, like I, as I mentioned before, I define control in two different ways. One is your ability to impose your will on circumstances or people, but then it it also is just about the freedom or the feeling that it gives you. So just feeling in control. The empowerment that you feel. Yes. So with most of the others I talk about, I think they are primarily used to feel in control. Although even with Shame, for instance, is a really powerful way to control other people. But theology, even knowledge and information, that is much more about things, acquiring knowledge that can make you feel more in control, make the world feel more predictable to you. But with power, you can actually control people to an extent, depending on what sort of power you have. So in its ugliest, darkest, most evil forms, we see it play out in slavery, you know, in oppression, in abuse, where whenever someone is actually being controlled in the sense that totally strips them of their agency, we, we call that slavery or imprisonment. And so there are forms of power that actually do allow us to control and then there are less less absolute forms of control that that we get from power like verbal power is that for me that's my vice is my verbal power where i can use my words to move people and i'm not fully controlling them like a slave master but i'm still pushing them pretty hard against their will <laughs> <laughs> And so yeah. there, there's a lot of ways that, that that can play out. But the the one that really sobers me and chastens me is spiritual power. And as a pastor, that has been a real learning, like a humbling learning curve for me. Because when you are in a position of spiritual authority, everything you do has God's name attached to it. And that can be good. That can be redemptive in a lot of ways. But if you use it to get your way, even if it's for what you believe is a good reason, if you're using it to pressure or to coerce, even if it's not really aggressively, the fallout can be catastrophic. And I, 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 it, it helped me like hearing from other people is one of the things that helped me to realize that because of my position as a pastor, I can gently encourage someone in a direction and I feel like I'm I'm barely nudging you but realizing that because I'm a pastor and because God's name the is attached to what I'm doing yeah there's all this freight attached to it and so what to me feels like a nudge feels like a shove to them and I think that's why pastors really unintentionally hurt their people is just misunderstanding, yes, you are a human being, just like anybody else. You are a flawed human being. You are not Jesus. 
you understand that. But unfortunately, a lot of people in your church do not understand that. They see you as a proxy for God himself. (laughs) That's true. And so you have to really be careful to understand the weight of, of every word. And I am still learning that and have made a lot of mistakes because I didn't understand that. That's good. That's good. One of the things, when I became a pastor, my senior pastor said, "Um, always a pastor, everywhere a pastor. And his statement was, it doesn't matter if you're in the church working or you're out in the community or you're on social media, you're, you're always a pastor. And therefore, that weight comes with it. Or like, I like your language, that freight comes with it everywhere you go which is kind of terrifying because like you're right it's even if we're clear about it that doesn't mean that people will not put that kind of weight on us and the 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 painful damage that we could cause people is to, really frightening almost to the point where you can almost feel like dear lord you know watch every word i say i'm afraid to say anything um if you really care about people it it can be frightening right but at the same time it's such a privilege when you see god use you as a pastor to minister to someone's heart, give them a sense of God. So yeah, what a delicate line. And and I do see, obviously, right now, so many spiritual leaders who um, who fall, and then people question every single word, you know, that they said. You know, so even some of our historical names that we admire so much, they were fallen humans who didn't have everything perfectly. Yeah. And then we question everything they said because of an action or something they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, and, so and I it's think really there hard. has to be, there does need to be some correction and accountability when, when a pastor does fall to be able to take that moment to self-reflect and ask, did I put them on a pedestal that maybe like yes. they didn't put themselves on? Maybe they asked not to be on. But you put them there. And so if your faith is really shaken, I don't think it's always the pastor's fault. I mean, obviously the pastor needs to own what they did. But if you are treating this person as if they are actually God, you know, as if they are a savior when they are just a human being, I think on on both sides, there has to be some responsibility. And do you think that's a function of control as well? When we when we have because you mentioned it, you talked about it in somewhere here. I'm trying to remember where my notes are. Blame is a way of mm-hmm. right. So if we can shift the responsibility mm-hmm. from ourselves to someone yeah. else, that's a form of control. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Right. Because then that way it's like, well, it's that pastor should have behaved a certain way, and mm-hmm. you know they didn't, so it's not my fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and blame is also it's a form of self protection as well just to avoid, you know, getting hurt in the future. But I really, and, and I think, yeah, I, this is such a like complicated <laughs> topic, so but I really, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to ever, I don't want to unduly blame victims, you know, people who right. really genuinely trusted their pastor and then were lied to and deceived but I, I think we just need to, in these broken situations, si- hold things together that aren't comfortably held together, which is to say this person may have abused power if they 
if they abuse their office in any way, whether it was intentionally or not, but also we need to remember pastors are human beings. They are just human beings. And we, those, those things must coexist. Agreed. Agreed. Inattention. And like you say, for a person who's been abused to think about maybe if there's anything that they added to the situation, that's a very dangerous thing, very dangerous thing to think about because it's so intertwined with the abuse itself that you don't want them to feel shame and guilt for the abuse and take ownership of that. Um, so th that's very, very hard to nuance. So I appreciate your sensitivity to that. Okay. In closing, um, can we talk about shame? Um, I, I relate to that one personally um, because obviously that's, that's my story. I dealt with a lot of shame. Even after I became a believer, it took years for me to really release myself of shame. But, but shame is, isn't just internal. Shame is external. So people control us using shame. And we, we control ourselves using shame, and we control God using shame. Yeah, so, we control other people using shame. We control our yeah. kids using shame. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that chapter was also a really fascinating one to write because of, you know, the obvious that we – shame is a really effective means of behavior modification. You know, you can get people to comply with shame – but the, the piece that took me a really long time to wrap my head around, but came, it was, it was a perspective I received from my husband, was in the same way, you know, when we were talking about theology, how prosperity theology re-narrates the world in a way that makes the world feel more predictable, that we aren't vulnerable to the capriciousness of our chaotic world, but that there are things we can do, actions we can take to make it feel more in control to us. And so prosperity theology does this, but so does shame. And that was really counterintuitive to me because I grew up in a really healthy home. But for kids who grow up in really dysfunctional family environments, in which you are blamed for things that are not your fault. You know, you have an alcoholic parent who says, I wouldn't have reacted in so much anger. I wouldn't have had this violent outburst if you hadn't done X, Y, Z. And so you're blamed for this parent's inappropriate behavior, which is very shaming. But there's this weird upside to that shame narrative that makes the world feel more predictable to you because the alternative is it was either my fault that my parent reacted this way therefore I cannot I can do something differently next time I have control that over from it happening. yes and that Correct. makes me feel yes. more in control I'm not as vulnerable the, the alternative is I have no control over any yeah. of the chaos in my home That's and right. that is scarier. <laughs> yes. And true. so because of that, kids who grow up in that environment, they start carrying around the shame narrative that says you are responsible for the emotional worlds of the people around you. And so if they are unhappy, it's your fault. You have failed in some way. And so that tears you down. But at the same time, it makes the world feel more predictable to you. And that was something that took me a while to 
wrap my mind around the way that shame can actually serve you. You know, obviously at the end of the day, it is just tearing you down. But why shame could also be useful to someone who grew up in a really chaotic home. And that is one that my husband, like that is was how he was using shame is, is he was blaming himself for when people were upset in the church, it must be my fault. I've done something or I've failed as a leader in some way. But the alternative is I have no control over the situation at all. And so that was just very, very interesting. And it took me a while to write that section just to even get that balance right. I think I had my husband sort of edit it and rewrite parts of it just to make sure I was getting it because it just is not my reality. But I think for people coming from that environment, it makes total sense. Well, I love that we're ending here because I think what we've shown in all of these, and you do obviously a much better job in the book itself, is these work. The reason why we do them is because they do work and they do function for us in a way to give us a false sense of security or peace or whatever it is that we're after. Um, And that's the challenge. That's where we're trapped in them. And we keep going back to that well over and over again. I, I think of my husband who, he went to Las Vegas. The very first time he went to Las Vegas and he, I don't even know what he did. I don't know if it was a slot machine or a table and he, he played and he won and he won a lot of money. And that created for him a season of gambling addiction that he had to work out of because it worked, right? right. Once it works, it's very hard to, and, you yeah. know, and addictions are a really good example of this because anytime you- you analogy. That's a great right. Analogy. Anytime you enter in an addiction, yeah. it does something so powerfully for you. You keep yeah. going back to it, hoping mm-hmm. it will do that again for you. Yeah. And if it doesn't, you amp up, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. and that's why I use the language of it being a devil's deal. Is yes, that I love that. You yes. think you're getting this great deal, but you're actually losing much more in the end. But mm-hmm. that that is the definition of a devil's deal: is the upfront is great. Yeah. But then you end up losing your soul, you know? <laughs> yes, very true. And that's what, what control is. Very good, very good. Okay, so next time we'll talk about the, finally, we're going to get to the solution, <laughs> which I know people are anxious to hear. But um, yeah, for today, what would you like to leave us with, with all of this information? You know, what would you, what, what do you think we should leave our listeners with so they don't feel hopeless? W- one thing, I'll tell you this, I noticed with every one of the, sections. I appreciate it that you ended with with some alternative, even though at the end of your book is where you really give us the full goal. But every single one of these had Jesus in it is what I right. noticed. Yeah. They're all pointing well, to Jesus. I can echo, I think I said this earlier, but I'll echo it again, is what happens with control and whatever form it takes is we are going to control to give us what we already have in Christ. And so to know that we already have security available to us in Jesus, and it's just a fool's errand to go to control, to give ourselves something that we already have available to us in Jesus. So that would be my last thought. I love that. Well, I just realized next time we're actually going to talk about the cost of control before we get to the final answer, which is so, so important. That's the whole title of your book, because we would we would stay in the cycle if we didn't realize, 
hey, it is giving us something. Let's be honest. That's what we just talked about. But it's also costing us something. And if it's really that that helps us have the clarity to seek an alternative because we realize, oh, well, this is costing me more than I want it to cost me. So that's what we'll talk about next time. So thanks again, Sharon. This has been great. Love it. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for listening to Uncharted Podcast with Inez Franklin. Learn more about Inez at unchartedpod.com. Follow Inez Journey on Instagram at Inez Franklin. Sign up for our email list to receive direct access to online experiences and more. Thanks for listening and join us again next time. Thank you.